This podcast is created and produced by Innovator. If you're looking to cut back or eliminate hot work on your next job, or for all of your industrial services needs, visit innovator.ca. Hello and welcome to the Industrial Innovators Podcast, hosted by founder and CEO of Innovator, Don Cooper. I'm Wyatt McPherson, I produce this show, and today we are joined by Shona McKenzie from ICR. Her and Don will be discussing composite repair and why you should be leveraging it more in your company, as well as a brand new rollout of composite repair solutions and products known as TechnoWrap, which are exclusive to Innovator within Canada for use on your next composite repair job. It's a fantastic conversation where both Shona and Don provide tons of insight on the technology, which I'm sure you will learn lots from. So let's hear what they have to say. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the newest edition of the Industrial Innovators Podcast. Uh, today, we've got Shona McKenzie from Aberdeen, Scotland, and she is with ICR Integrity. And today, we're going to be talking about composite pipe repair and their techno wrap uh, range of products. Good morning, Shona. Good morning. And how Thank are things in beauty? No, we're we're happy to have you. Um, how are things in sunny, beautiful Aberdeen today? Well, it's not sunny today, unfortunately. It was sunny this morning, but um, no, it's not so nice at the moment. Cloudy. Well, it's it's Aberdeen, right? All you have to do in terms of <laughs> if you don't like the weather is wait ten minutes, right? Uh, true. What would you expect? At least it's not raining sideways or snowing or all seasons in uh, one. The, uh, the raining sideways, um, semi-frozen rain with uh, <laughs> 60 kilometer an hour winds is something that I dearly miss from Aberdeen. <laughs> nah, not, not really. <laughs> I sense sarcasm there. <laughs> but Aberdeen is a beautiful place on July 18th each year, right? <laughs> <laughs> You've definitely had experience in Aberdeen. <laughs> I've had lots. I, I love Aberdeen. We own a, a place there and uh, I've got tons of friends and family there and hopefully some of them will listen in. They, uh, they all know that I'm, uh, I'm Facebook famous for podcasts and all this stuff. So, you know, once in a while, I think one of them might even listen in to see uh, what this is all about. So today we're going to talk about composite repair and recently, um, Innovator uh, reformed our uh, business relationship with ICR, and we're now working with uh, ICR on your quick flange wellless piping connection system, which we we worked with ICR for many years on that, um, and we had a, a little uh, a little pause for about two years, uh, but we hadn't worked with uh, ICR on composites before. Uh, but Innovator has been doing um, composite pipe repair for a long time. So I'm really interested to learn uh, more about TechnoWrap and, uh, and about uh, how ICR approaches composites. Mm -hmm. So some of our listeners have already heard about ICR because we had your colleague Phil Patterson on a show um, a couple of weeks ago, and it will be airing in the next week or two, probably uh, one week before or after this show. Uh, so people will either hear about ICR from this episode or from Phil's episode. But in case this one, uh, people hear this one and not Phil's, why don't we start with uh, with who is, who is ICR uh, Integrity? Okay. 
So um, ICR is a private equity-backed um, group of six business units. Um, basically, they were born out of acquisition, all historically from the United Kingdom. Um, the original company was established back in, I think it was 92. So mm -hmm. ICR provides uh, maintenance and integrity solutions. And we sort of aim to service each element of the integrity lifecycle. So basically looking at things from inspection, preservation, repair, as well as reinstatement um, of all sorts of different pipework um, structures. And we also work in a number of different markets. So predominantly oil and gas has been our history. We obviously started out in the UK and the North Sea, but we also work in um, power, chemical, nuclear, nuclear and defense as well. So a variety of history across um, different industries. Right. So let's talk uh, about this one group. So uh, let's tell me about the history of Technorap. Um, okay, so Technorap was originally, um, well, Technorap is the brand, essentially. Walker right. Technical was the original company, um, and that was established, that was 92. So that was the original company that was established. Um, it's been around for the brand itself, Technorap, it's been around for about 20 years. So it was established in 2000, um, and that's basically where the name Technorap 2K came from, Technorap 2000. Um, so in that time, we've um, built up a big portfolio of operators and track records. We've probably done about roughly 25,000 installations worldwide. Um, mm -hmm. So we've got some really good in-service history um, as well as sort of long-term testing as well. So company's been around a long time and we do have a lot of experience in composite repairs and there's a lot of knowledge in the business that's been in the business since its inception, really. So uh, originally, uh, Technorap being the, the product range and the, yeah. the, the company, your founding company that maybe on a global scale, more people would be familiar with uh, Walker Technical before they would uh, recognize uh, its connection to the newer ICR brand, right? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. So Walker Technical was the, the original company that then was brought into the ICR group. Um, Walker Technical was quite a well-known brand name in itself, I suppose, globally. And um, so it's been a little bit of a struggle trying to trying to drop that and make sure that everybody uses the Technorap brand name. Right. Yeah, I mean, when you go through a rebranding exercise, um, you know, with a company that and a product that has a strong name, it, it certainly takes a while for... Uh, for the new lingo and the new terminology yeah. and the new branding to catch on for sure. And, uh, but I just wanted to connect the dots for people who might not be familiar with, uh, ICR that, you know, the, 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 the range of services we're talking about is the Walker technical brand that is now ICR integrity and the, the techno wrap, uh, product range is the same. Uh, well, and evolving all the time. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It always evolves. Um, you know, new development. We spend a lot of money and time on, on development as well. So um, continuously evolving our product range and, and our testing capabilities as well. Right. So for listeners who have no idea what Composite is uh, and Technorap, um, or um, for listeners who uh, 
maybe maybe even have the wrong perception of what composite is. Let's kind of just dive in to what is a techno wrap composite repair and, and how do they work? Yeah, so um, the, the, the techno wrap range of products are essentially used to restore uh, serviceability of things like pressure systems, pipelines, structural components that possibly have been damaged from um, or weakened from corrosion. So what the product allows operators to do is extend the production life um, of their plant or asset. Um, I, I guess historically, before there was a lot of testing and data available on composites, people saw them as very short-term solutions. Um, we, you know, we continuously strive to get away from that message. We see them as defined life solutions. Um, they're used for repair, ultimately, but they can be put in service and can last anything up to 20 years. So they do have a good um, sort of service and longevity. Um, the composites that we use ourselves, they're made up of either glass fiber or carbon fiber stitch cloths. Um, and what we do is we combine that with an, an epoxy resin, um, which we have lots of different kinds of, of resins and they can all be um, combined together for different application requirements. Um, the other thing that I guess is important is that every repair that we provide is bespoke and fully engineered. So it's not just this kind of stick on a bandage and hope for the best. You know, we're designing this based on unique requirements of that particular system or the particular loads of a structure, for instance. Um, so they're, they're all wet layup, hand applied, um, which makes them really easy um, and very quick to install, essentially. You know, you, uh, you, you talk about um, this perception that it's a Band-Aid in the past or and the fact that it's engineered. I think that's probably one of the biggest uh, misperceptions um, that has developed in the marketplace. Um, yeah. Recently on a video that we had posted on, uh, on LinkedIn, uh, I was talking about uh, the longevity of, of composite repairs and mm -hmm. there was a contact who works for a major oil operator and and this gentleman was uh looked like a 30-year veteran in the industry and he commented on you know it's not reliable and it's a you know he, he referred to it as a muffler for an active leak and and i you know I, and i my, i instantly kind of wanted to get into a a uh a little bit of a conversational debate and I went, you know uh, you know yeah. it, it it really and I, I understand the, um, the the perceptions based on how it has been used for so many years. Because uh, when I was first introduced to composite repair, um, I won't name the particular manufacturer, but they would, you know, show up and give you a four-hour orientation uh, on how to uh, wet the product and wrap the product. And they gave yeah. you an Excel spreadsheet. They gave you an Excel spreadsheet that you would punch in the parameters that you thought were important around the uh, operating pressure, diameter, defect size. Real simple, and it would basically yeah. tell you how many wraps to put on uh, on the pipe. And they would sell that product to anyone that would buy it without any real competency. There was certainly no engineering behind a basic uh, beyond a basic. Uh, calculation um, that came in a spreadsheet that anyone could you know make up themselves 
Um, mm-hmm. So there wasn't a real sound engineering base. There wasn't any competency verification. Uh, there wasn't a lot of confirmation on the materials that should be used for the application. And there certainly wasn't any focus on surface preparation. Um, yeah. And so in, in Canada and in the United States, a lot of people um, have a perception that a composite is a band-aid repair that a pipe fitting crew can grab to wrap on something that's actively leaking. And we're not talking about that. We're talking about something totally different, right? Totally different. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things I found hardest is that, especially for me, um, dealing with with Canada and the U.S., you know, globally, they're they're seen quite different in, in different locations. But it really is about educating clients on the differences. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's quite frustrating that, um, you know, you get these bandage type solutions and that's what we're compared to because for me, it's, it's nothing like that. You know, this is a fully engineered product that has real thought behind it. And, you know, we have all the engineering which we maintain in-house um, and it, it's a real robust solution that has a lot of history um, and a lot of, in-service um, proof, essentially, about how well these things work. So it's it's unfortunate that, you know, reputation of some previous companies or the way they work has, you know, tainted the market's view. But I think that's that's our challenge to try and, um, I suppose, educate and, and allow people to understand the uses of composites and where they should be used. The other thing is, you know, it's important to say that composites, are not right for absolutely every scenario. And we would be the first people to say, that's not the right fit for a composite repair. So it shouldn't be used in that scenario. I think that that is really important um, because I think in the past they've been misused or you know applied or used by people that maybe don't fully understand the requirements. Yeah, I, I've seen it dozens and dozens of times and as I said, even even in the, in the last few days, someone had commented that they thought it was a band aid and it wasn't appropriate, and that uh, that the whole plant should be taken down and they should repair, um, you know, with traditional piping methods. And you know, I would say to a client, um, you know, if you can afford to shut your facility down and replace all your piping with brand new piping, and that's your strategy, go for it. But um, that's not really what most clients uh, can do, particularly if you have um, a, a variety of erosion and corrosion defects and you're 18 months or three years uh, away from your next outage, or it's a $15 million refit for piping. Um, yeah. There's so many places where it's just not practical for clients to rebuild their whole facility and you know, what composites enable them to do when done correctly is is rehabilitate the piping back to full uh, full operating pressures if it's if it's engineered properly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, from a piping standpoint, the way I kind of try to explain because, you know, the, this phenomena of it being perceived as a Band-Aid is um, is because of misuse and 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 lack of education but the way that i try to explain it to clients is like you can go down to the local pipe supply shop and buy pipe and you can take one of your people who kind of sort of knows how to fit 
and yeah. kind of sort of knows how to weld and they can throw some pipe together. Uh, it isn't engineered. It, you know, this, the credentials of the people who assemble it are, 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 are not controlled. There isn't an inspection and test plan. Um, and therefore you wouldn't put that piping just because it's pipe, you know, into uh, an oil refinery and operate your facility that way. And that's the same way they should think about composite as a material versus as a solution. You can't just buy the material and, and, and then measure the material based on how you misused it. Um, and that's yeah. how people need, you know, think about if, if you want an engineered product, uh, you would engineer piping in a certain way with an installation procedure and qualifications and an inspection and test plan and with with credentialed engineers to design it. Um, and if you would do it that way, then that's how you should treat how you're going to repair the piping with a composite solution. Yeah. And any, anything outside of that is um, here in uh, here in Alberta in Canada. Uh, you know, that would, if you didn't do it that way, then it would be uh, um, a bootleg solution or a, or a, a farmer solution, right? I mean, it's okay if you're running your farm to make something work, but uh, that, that's not how our industrial clients work. Yeah. And, you know, and there's, there's some scenarios where you need a temporary fix and we do have a solution that can be used in that scenario. So we have a, you know, a simple polyurethane type bandage for instance that can be applied by anyone um, and we see that as a very very different product to our engineered repairs you know these engineered repairs require a full design um, process and also have full installation guidelines that they have to be applied by somebody who's fully trained in that application and for composite repairs the QAQC and application process is such a huge part because little things can make that repair go wrong. So if it's not done properly in the first place, you're essentially setting yourself up to failure, really. Um, so it's important that you have really good controls and measures in place to make sure that you're, you're putting that repair on with every possible chance of success. And the, the good thing here, I guess, with, with how they're, they're termed in the UK, just as an example, so they're, they're sort of classified as defined life repairs. So they're not temporary, they're not permanent, because every operator has a different scenario where they may require a repair to last um, three years, five years, 10 years. So each solution is designed specifically to their requirements, which is quite a nice way to term it, defined life rather than temporary or permanent. Right, and that way, if the particular use case for the client is, you know, you know, given a, a specific set of uh, process temperature uh, and operating conditions, if they want, they require a five-year repair versus a 10-year repair, then the engineering behind that and the way we design that is going to be different, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it may mean that the output of that repair requires less layers, for instance, if it was going to be a shorter term repair. Um, it's very difficult to, to give an exact example because there are so many elements that can impact either the length or the thickness of repair. So for example, your design temperatures and pressures, your operating conditions, things like the defect size, your landing area, surface preparation. So there's a lot of thought that actually goes into the design aspect. It's not just as simple as you have a, a leaking piece of pipe and you want to stick something over the top of it. 
it's been given a lot of thought to actually get to that point. And in the end, when that were, when that plan is put together, there's an engineering package. Exactly, exactly, which has a life of that repair. So we can essentially say to you, that repair is going to last you for five years, for instance. So it means that people can put in plans and mitigations um, to know that maybe after five years' time, they're going to replace that piece of pipework, for instance. Or for some people, they might want to get themselves to a planned shutdown, so they may be able to use it in that scenario. Or other people, I mean, we still have repairs that are on in the UK that have been on for 15, 20 years. So it really depends on the criticality of the system, I suppose, and, and what you're trying to do with that repair. Right. So speaking of engineering, um, you know, we're not talking about uh, simply that uh, that we are developing an engineering um, package for this. There's actually codes and standards that every client in the world can refer to that actually provide the guidance for the types of engineering qualifications and how you should plan a repair, correct? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So um, ISO 24817 and ASME PCC2, they're the two um, international standards that are, are used. Um, and all of our engineering and design is carried out to that code and the requirements. Um, and basically all of our um, design scenarios and material properties as well as testing is all validated and qualified to that particular standard. Um, right. So it's, it's important that that is used as best practice for composite repair because it gives, it gives really good guidelines. Um, we do go over and above what is required for that actual standard and we always like to do additional testing um, just to make sure that we're comfortable with what we're providing as a service. We've also had um, all of that audited um, by independent third parties, so the, the likes of Lloyd's, Re Register, ABS, um, DMV. Um, so we're, we're certified as fully compliant to those standards. Right, so design to the various codes um, from ISO and from ASME, and then all yeah. of your testing and, um, and validation is third-party validated with Correct. you know factory assessment testing uh, witnessed by recognized global quality authorities, just like any other pressure component that clients would be familiar with following a similar process. Exactly the same. Right. Exactly. I think that's one of the one of the big uh, misnomers, particularly in North America, is that uh, there's a difference between composite material and engineered composite. Uh, solutions and the fact that it is, it is you know foundationally based on code that it isn't made up and that you can't just grab a package of you know water activated uh, material that a lot of people have used and give it to one of your pipe fitting crews and slap it on and think that that's something to compare a composite to. Yeah, it's it's a very different thing, and you know we're we're fully involved in both committees. So we're we're in the committee for ISO and ASME. So we're we're always involved in um, improvements as well for you know how we can how we can make composites better, more readily available, and help people to understand where, when, and why they should be used. 
Okay. Well, before we move on, and uh, I'm going to jump around a little bit, um, mm -hmm. I want to just come back to ICR for a moment and, mm -hmm. and just talk about, you know, what markets are you working in on a, a podcast, uh, have a global audience and, uh, you know, we might have, uh, listeners in any part of the world who subscribe. I know I was speaking with some contacts in uh, the middle East and in India this morning who mm -hmm. listened to the podcast. And, um, as our show gets more popular, we'll uh, hopefully touch uh, clients all over the world in in the industrial space. So, where 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 is ICR operating? So we we're originally from the the UK, as you know, but we have oper operational bases in the UK, in Norway, Australia, USA, and um, UAE in Abu Dhabi. Um, so they're our main operational hubs. Um, and they sort of allow us to deliver response to um, partners and um, clients globally. Um, the other important part of that is, is valued partners as well. So we have a number of different valued partners across the globe. So for instance, Canada, Trinidad, Africa, Egypt, India, to name a few. So we, we are a global company. Um, and the, the good thing about composites is that they're, they're really easy, easily transportable, I suppose. So you can kind of work in, in any region you can offer good quality training programs um, and support partners to be able to allow them to, to deliver the service as as part of ICR as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so the ICR business has uh, material engineering uh, training um, and then obviously your variety of uh, of other people in different roles in all of those offices you mentioned. And then in addition yeah. to that, you're, you're going to market with, with partners around the world, installation partners and sales partners like innovator uh, and others yeah. in, in other parts of the world where you guys are not located. Correct. Yeah. But we, we treat partners um, as part of the business, you know, it's, it's, it's equally important to us. Um, because you're you're offering our service essentially, and, and we want to work together to make that as successful as possible. So, you know, no matter yeah. whether it's an operational was, base, uh, or partner, yeah, same. we've been. You know, I, I was I was working with Phil yesterday just on business planning for the next twelve months and sharing information on what clients are doing what and what yeah. we're going to do from a training and a material and an engineering perspective. Um, so, you know. We, we we do work hand in glove with uh, with ICR and, and vice versa. So it is a network. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So let's uh, let, let's dive in a little bit to. Um, I want to kind of put my hat on like I'm a client and ask you frequently asked questions from the point of view of a client uh, to help mm -hmm. them uh, answer the questions that they might have about composites. Okay. So, so the first one that comes to mind is, you know, what are the applications from a client perspective that uh, TechnoRap is suitable for? Um, I, I guess this is this in itself is one of the benefits of composite repairs is that they're suitable for so many different applications. So, for example, the bread and butter of, of ICR was pipework repairs, pressure system type repairs. Um, we also do repairs on pipelines, tanks, vessels caissons, decks, all sorts of other structural components. Um, 
Again, another another thing that has been developing significantly for us has been the use of composite repairs in structures, so carbon fiber. Um, and that, that's had a significant push for us over the past five to 10 years. Um, I guess when people start to see things um, like airplanes being made out of um, you know, composite material, they start to, to grow a different confidence for repairing structural components as well. Um, we have lots of different resins, as I mentioned before, so they can all be combined with different cloths to suit these different applications. Um, and that's, that's the real benefit of composite repairs. It's essentially tailor-made to the exact scenario. On the structural side, and that's an area that I've dabbled in a little bit, I've mainly worked in composites more on the pressure side for 20 yeah. years, but the structural side, some of the kinds of applications there would be concrete pillars. Um, what other kinds of things can you, can you use from a structural integrity standpoint? We don't actually do um, concrete repairs, particularly. It's not a focus area of ours, but um, structural components made of steel is is a okay. huge part of the business um i guess the biggest ones for us would be um caissons and risers where you're essentially mm -hmm. designing um the caisson for potential full separation for instance you need to consider 100 year wave loadings um, and almost treating that composite as if you know there's going to be full circumferential separation of the caisson so you know it's designed to consider real load um as well as uh, the internal pressure you've also got repairs for instance such as deck repairs so where you're looking to add additional strength back into um into a deck uh, that may have foot traffic it might be a lay down area we have a specific rubber toughened epoxy it's called our technorap drs um, and that has rubber nanoparticles within that which allows um for impact to be displaced so it's a, it's a really good product for where a standard composite um, would be more brittle. Um, mm -hmm. We also could look at things like just general structural components, um, for instance, high axial loaded beams. Um, there's all sorts of different scenarios. And the thing we always say is don't ever think that it's not going to be suitable. Allow us to make that decision and have a look at the repair and say, that's something we could do or that's something we wouldn't, wouldn't be able to help with. Ultimately, it all comes down to the limitations of repairs, which are either pressures, um, defect sizes, or loadings, I suppose. Okay. Um, so from a structural standpoint, structural steel, decking, um, you know, all those kinds of structural components, we, you, can, you can repair, reinforce, strengthen, um, uh, and restore life. Uh, back exactly. into those components. A lot of that time is, is you know, I know we, I've seen these applications before when you were you when when it, um, glass was used, but you know, there's a lot more capability and technology now that um, the carbon fiber is is an option, uh, providing yeah, a whole so other set of new kinds of materials that can be used. Yeah, they, ha they have different properties, essentially. We, we tend to find that we would use the, the glass cloth, which is a, a triaxial fiber um, combined with epoxy. And that's, that's more for your sort of pressure systems um, and, you know, your, your pipe work repairs. Mm -hmm. We use structural cloth, which is a quadraxial carbon fiber cloth. So it's, it's different in the way in which the fabric is woven. And that's more used on structural components. But we also have a third cloth, which is our 
HPPRS, so that's unidirectional carbon fibre, and that's mm -hmm. generally used in high axial loading scenarios. So all of them can be combined, for instance. It's not to say that you would only use one cloth. You may use both the structural and the HPPRS cloth, depending on the way in which the loading scenario is um, dictated. So combine that. Yeah, very flexible. A lot of our clients are, um, are in the pressure side of, of the equation. Um, Give me some ideas on what we're talking about in terms of temp temperature and pressure applications. Okay, so I'm just trying to think in the right unit you know, of measurement. So in terms of... Um, it's okay, you know, you know so we have global <laughs> global listeners and uniquely to, um, you know, our American uh, listeners will be thinking in, uh, in PSI and Fahrenheit. <laughs> We're, all of our Canadian listeners, we have a hybrid <laughs> because we, 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 on the same documents in Canada, when you get an engineering package from a client, you'll be seeing inches and millimeters and Celsius <laughs> and Fahrenheit. Um, yep. Yeah, we, we, we are definitely COVID. measurement confused. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I, it's one thing I've never been able to get my head around and I still have to think, think through before I present it. But yeah, the, the pressures... Um, capabilities are up to 250 bar on a 12 inch line so that's about 3600 odd psi and that would be for mm -hmm. an external defect so non-through wall defects and um, right. ultimately the, the diameter depends so the, the smaller the diameter the higher the pressure we can get to but we like to just give an, a rough kind of number um so in, terms know, of, in terms of a process facility that kind of covers um, a wide range of what they're facing unless they're into, you know, really high pressure steams. Yeah. The the difference, I suppose, would be when it's, the defect is through wall. So then you're right. limited by around about 50 bar, 725 PSI. And um, mm -hmm. obviously there's more to consider the composite has to do more work. Um, we would normally consider that the, with internal corrosion, that the, um, the pipework is going to go through wall during that life of the repair. So you need to consider the load profile change as well. Um, we have done testing up to about 18,000 BSI on a three-quarter inch line, so very good results with that. So the, the capabilities are, you know, really, really good. With regards to the temperature ranges, you're looking at probably around about minus 100 Fahrenheit up to about 428 Fahrenheit, so minus 75 to 220 degrees Celsius. Right. There you go. I managed it that time. <laughs> I think that's about right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think between one of those, you know, most people will be able to, if they, if they, if they care about the conversion between Celsius and Fahrenheit, they'll likely know how to do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so up to uh, 428 Fahrenheit and down to semi cryogenic temperatures, uh, those are operating conditions. Um, Obviously, installation temperatures need to be different. Yeah, I suppose you're limited by um, what the, the technician can can apply on. You know, that it has to be safe for our technician. If it's too right. hot or too cold, it's not really applicable. Also, you may then run into issues with, for instance, the resin curing off too fast if the, the temperature of the line is particularly hot. And so you're probably limited... <laughs> Or, or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Or it won't cure at all. So there's different resin systems that require 
um, different ambient conditions to cure. So I mentioned the high temperature range, or so the 428 Fahrenheit. We have mm-hmm. a, a high temperature resin system. In order to actually cure that, that does require um, heat. So we would use heat right. blankets to, to cure the repair. Um, so there, there are a number of different scenarios. The, the low temperature resin is what we would use for um, the lower end of that scale. So we, we mix it up depending on the, the service temperatures. We also consider things like the, the fluid in the line or compatibility with different resins. So we have, for instance, a potable water resin system. Uh, so that could be used for drinking water, so there's no compatibility issues. We have um, a glycol methanol resin system. Um, typically, uh, composite repairs don't really like methanol alcohol type um, fluids. So we designed a specific product range to combat that. Obviously, that depends on temperatures, again, and um, concentration of glycol or methanol. So all of these different resins can be mixed and each of them has a different um, limitation. But we would make that decision on the engineering side. So the, you know, the customer would fill in an application form detailing all of this information and we would make a, a design assessment based on that and then make a recommendation which would be backed by our engineering. I, uh, I'm falling victim to... Um the working from home phenomena um, that lots of people in the world are experiencing now. And uh, my daughter and my dog just decided to come into my office and they're down at my feet. So I'm having to uh, ask them to uh, either stay calm or, uh, or exit the premises. They seem to be just cuddled up wanting to listen underneath my desk right now, which is perfectly (laughs) fine. I think, I think the whole world, yeah, they're both smiling at me right now. Um, At least they're happy. Okay. They're happy. <laughs> Let's, uh, one of the things I've seen a big problem with the use of composites historically, when they kind of, you know, an operator grabs the material and sends the crew out who's had a half a day's worth of training is, is, is they don't, they don't understand um, anchor profile and surface preparation requirements to actually make the composite uh, adhere and behave the same as the parent material. Uh, why don't yeah. you just talk a little bit about surface prep? Yeah, so I suppose this is the one that we we bang on about the most because it really is the most important factor with a, a successful composite repair. So the, the adhesion is measured with the energy release rate and the repair performance is basically controlled through the adhesion of the, the composite repair to that particular substrate. So it's so important that the the surface is prepared in accordance with the engineering. So there's there's different levels of surface preparation, anything from, you know, grip blasting, SA two and a half, sort of near white metal. We can also use um, mechanical preparation, which is sort of ST3 prep. prep. Um, And on very few occasions, hand preparation. We just... We don't find that you get a, a particularly successful composite repair with hand preparation, and it's ultimately one of the things that, that can let the composite repair down if it's not done properly. So it really is one of the most important factors in a composite repair. Right. I think it's so important for anyone listening to understand what you just said is is creating that right anchor profile, that right surface preparation is, I would argue, one of the, you know, probably the the highest priority because it seems to be the place where 
uh, people don't understand it and therefore want to cut some corners. They don't want to do the surface preparation. They think, oh, it's, you know, it's clean enough, but it's yes. not about clean. It's, it's about creating a particular surface that allows yeah. for the materials to bond. Well, it, it works through mechanical interlocking. So the resin system has to flow into these surface irregularities. And that's, that's basically what gives you that good adhesion. So without that, you're, you're not going to get a particularly good bond. It, it's so important. And it's one of the things, you know, people are, are nervous to prepare lines, for instance. They might think, oh, I don't want to, to do any surface preparation there. We can design so that the, the defect area doesn't actually need to be prepared. So the, the, the important part is the, the landing area, for instance. So as long as there is good um, clean landing areas with good preparation, then we can consider the, the defect area um, or the, the full area as a defect or a non-bonded area, essentially. Right. So a, a, an example for listeners is if they had a very thin area of the pipe that was a couple of inches square, as an example, uh, and they yeah. they were really concerned around touching that area of the pipe at all because they were just uncomfortable. You could yeah. create a design that was, uh, let's for argument's sake, six feet long or four feet long, at where your where all your surface preparation is going to be on the ends and far enough away from the defect that you can get yeah. the right surface prep and not have to um, do any mechanical work near the defect. Yeah, exactly. Theoretically, that's the case. I mean, ultimately, there'll be other considerations like the pressure, for instance, temperature. But theoretically, yes, Um, a lot lot of people get nervous about preparing areas that they may have sort of pitting or pinholes, for instance. So that can be considered in the design. We have have multiple different defects that we can design for, whether that would just be, you know, a pinhole or a hole defect, or we could design for a full circumferential slot. So that's assuming that, you know, again, there would be full separation of the pipework. And um, so there's multiple different defect types that can be considered. But what we would do is just increase the, the length of that defect size um, and treat it all as a non-bonded area if it couldn't be prepped. So you, you talk about defects. So let's just dive in a little bit in the kinds of defects that clients are normally seeing and, and how you address them. Yeah, so um, I guess the, the most straightforward is um, your external corrosion. So corrosion pits or weld corrosion, for instance. So that, that's probably the most common scenario for composite repairs. And it's the most straightforward because obviously the, the application of a composite repair would prevent any further corrosion. So that means that the defect size and the remaining wall thickness at application will be used in the design. So that's not going to change. Um, slightly more complex would be the likes of internal corrosion and through wall defects or leaks. So the application of a composite repair wouldn't necessarily stop that internal corrosion mechanism. It would obviously continue underneath. Um, so what we would have to do is consider in the design that that, def- that internal defect would continue to grow over that period of the design life. So they're just treated slightly different um, in terms of how they're, they're used. It may mean that if it's internal corrosion and we don't know what the corrosion rate is, we might need to assume that it would have a shorter lifespan in order to you know, prevent any concerns with um, the composite repair not working beyond that life. 
Right. And, and that would, again, you know, that's just effectively understanding whether it's internal or external and what you know about the propagation of that defect, whether you can stop the defect from growing or not is going to all play into the kinds of the, the, the design of the, of the recommended repair. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, you know, yeah. you know, thinking in terms of general ideas, you know, customers will get dents, they will get external yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, corrosion. Um, they get corrosion under insulation uh, is obviously yeah. a major global issue that composite yeah. can be a solution to solve. And of course, if it's if it's CUI, then we can actually stop that. Yeah, absolutely. So the insulation right. can be removed and we can apply um, a composite. It doesn't even necessarily necessarily have to be, you know, a fully engineered. We can use it almost as a corrosion protection barrier, essentially. So there's there's lots of different um, uses for them. Um, but yeah, that that's a great example. And the other one that comes up sometimes is can it be used um, on cracks? So I guess that the difficulty for that is that it would have to be under certain design conditions. So obviously the, the crack orientation and load would need to be considered because um, axial cracks would obviously continue to propagate out with the composite. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that, that would be considered on a on a case by case basis. Um, but mechanical impacts and dents, for instance, can be repaired. Well, one of the. Uh one of our big clients and you're based in Aberdeen and you obviously have a, a company history operating in the North sea. Um, mm -hmm. Can this be used on hydrocarbons? Yes. I get, I get asked this all the time. So I would say probably about 60 to 70% of our repairs are on hydrocarbon systems. Um, we obviously make an assessment on criticality, as I said, at the design stage, but yes, they they are they're used on hydrocarbon systems all the time, in in global major operators. Any particular um, uh, restrictions in terms of the kinds of hydrocarbons or uh, that that uh, customers can consider? Or again, obviously, it's a bespoke review each time. Uh, it, anything it, stand out it, on what we can't could or couldn't do? Um. So I guess sort of high. Acids, I suppose, can be quite tricky. Um, as I mentioned previously, methanol, glycol, alcohol at very high temperatures and concentration um, tends to be tends to be quite complex. We do have a, a chemical compatibility list that we can share, okay. uh, but we Perfect. we would always consider the fluid that is in the line at, at the design stage. So, you know, the process stream is always part of the design criteria. Yes. It's, right. a, it's one of the, the questions on the application form. Okay. Let's talk about substrates. What kinds of materials are we, uh, are we working with? Again, a, the great thing about composites is that if it's, um, if it's steel, essentially, we can, we can repair it. So um, any carbon stainless steel, there, there's no real concern. I guess the only different consideration is that the substrate material might offer sort of different levels of adhesion. So that would possibly be considered within the, the design calculation. So for instance, um, composites don't bond as well to stainless steel. So we may use like an acid etching process um, 
and we, we would do that as part of our, our repair installation. Um, I guess the other repair types, we do a lot of repairs on GRE or GRP pipe work. It's obviously mm-hmm. very good in terms of adhesion because it's, it's an epoxy-based material. So you're not really that limited in terms of the, the substrates. We've talked a bit about, um, well, we talked a fair bit about about how repairs are designed and and what the approvals what approvals are in place. Um, everything is designed to ISO and um, uh, and ASME PCC two. Yeah. What kinds of approvals have you gone through beyond the code compliance with with third parties? So we have a um, triple ISO certificate um, for our QAQC process. We have Lloyd's um, type approval. We have ABS design and manufacturing approval. um, And we also have DMV type examination. Um, So I guess they're all just certifying that we are fully compliant with those um, um, different codes, ISO and and ASME. And and ISO and ASME, they're they're very similar, really. There are a few slight differences differences i would say the iso requires a, a little bit more testing and it's a little bit more specific in terms of um how repairs are qu- classified in terms of how long they can stay on for and um, as a pcc2 terms them short term or long term whereas iso would sort of say anything up to 20 years so that that's the main differences okay and so on the on the uh lifespan the word that I heard you use that I, I don't think I've heard anyone use that phrase before that I really liked was defined life. Because yes. the question a lot of clients will have is, are these temporary or are these permanent? And yeah. what, what you said was something different that was, I think, more valuable. Yeah. I, I think Just describe that a little bit. Classifying them as defined life means that it's a tailored solution. So. There, there's absolutely no point saying they're temporary or permanent because every single one is different. Some operators may choose to leave a composite repair on for two years, whereas others um, may choose to leave the repair on for 20 years. So it really is it's client service and um, application dependent. The defined life for me is a, a much more suitable way to term it rather than saying temporary or permanent. Well, I think from a listener point of view and from a client point of view, I think the idea of defined life is really important in the consultation phase. And it's why we're asking these kinds of questions because because we want to give you the repair that you need. And if you don't need a 10-year repair, you know, there's there's design criteria that play into that, but there's also a cost. And yeah. if what you really need is, you know, particularly right now where we have the whole world on, you know, on this dealing with COVID-19 and dealing with the current collapse of oil pricing, a lot of operators uh, are, are likely either delaying major pipe works and turnarounds, certainly during the COVID-19 sort of global isolation phase, but also in response to where we're at with global oil pricing. But they might not need uh, to delay that repair uh, for, for 10 years. They might need to get till the summer of 2021. 
and exactly. that can have a major impact on on how, what kind of solution we're going to offer them. If they need to get 18 months, um, it's going to be a different a different repair uh, design and a different cost simply because there's less material or a shorter repair or a longer repair. I think customers really need to consider how long do I need this repair to get me to when I'm going to actually, you know, repair that piping, if I'm going to repair that piping permanently with replacement um, piping. Uh, I think that's really key. I have a lot of conversations with clients where they go, well, how much does it cost? And the answer often is, well, how long is a how long is a piece of string? Because uh, how long do you need the repair? Um, and 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 I we often look at from a cost effectiveness standpoint into in the design. Equally, there is the cost of materials, and there's the cost of installation and surface preparation. All of those things play into uh, the longevity of the repair. Um, and and, and the conditions right so uh, we've often done carbon fiber repairs where the material was much more expensive but because of the dynamics of the repair uh, in particular we uh, diameter and length it was such a huge savings in time to use more uh, the, the the stronger carbon fiber material simply because we didn't have to put as many layers on for for that particular yeah. application yeah. it was it was more cost effective to use a higher grade material because it cut so much time out of the application. Yeah, absolutely, that makes sense, and we would consider that you know in, in our design process as well. So sometimes we'll look at how many layers, for instance, it would be with our two K cloth. And if it's coming out at quite a high number of layers, we might say, right, let's switch to our um, carbon fiber cloth and see how many repair layers that would require. Um, and it's normally less, but like you said, it's it's a more expensive cloth. So it's all about balancing um, the, the the repair method that you're offering and also trying to make it the most cost-effective solution possible. I think you mentioned there about cost, and, and honestly, I get that question every time. How much is a repair? How much does a typical repair cost? But it's so difficult to say that because every repair varies in length, thickness, geometry. Um, and as we've said you know, before, it, it's engineered on a bespoke basis depending on the, the criteria. So it's such a hard one to answer. I always try and say anecdotally they, they can save up to sort of 40 to 60% compared to um, traditional methods. But like I said, it, it's such a hard one to put a number on. Um, I would just actively encourage people to to give us an example, give us a scenario and allow us to, to cost a, a typical scenario. That, that's the best way to, to give an example of cost. I think the other part of that, just from a, uh, you know, educating our listeners point of view is this whole idea of cost. When you are looking at who and how you're going to compare, um, uh, how you're going to approach a comp, a, a composite repair, you got to make sure you're comparing apples to apples in terms of what you're getting for length and value and strength and material and design and surface preparation because, um, and I know particularly in Canada and the U S I I think it's because there's more recognition of code compliance uh, in other jurisdictions relative to composites. But in Canada and the U S what I've seen is, um, a client who doesn't understand the difference between 
composite material and an engineered composite solution, they may go yeah. out to three companies. Someone is, you know, a corrosion um, uh, corrosion prevention client. And what I've seen this to go to someone who is used to wrapping pipe for corrosion prevention and ask them yeah. to also give them pricing to wrap with composite. And yeah, oh, a- they were, they were, they were way cheaper. Well, the rate cheaper <laughs> because they're not actually doing it properly and they're not giving yeah. you what you actually need. They're slapping three layers of, of low cost, uh, water activated, um, uh, glass on there and calling it a composite repair and may, you know they're likely not even doing proper surface preparation i see that an awful lot and and i think you know you got to have a lot of, of proper conversations with uh the client to qualify what they're trying to accomplish because often they'll buy something that is just not what they think they're going to get and they and then you have a bigger issue where you just put a hundred meters of uh, the wrong solution on the piping and now you've got to deal with that. Yeah. And they're not made to come off. So <laughs> they're not made to come off. You know, there's one thing I will say about composites. They might not adhere well, but they're real tough to take off. <laughs> yeah. It's, it has to be compared, <clears throat> comparing apples with apples, as you said. So the important question is what do you need the composite repair to do? Is it to yeah. retain pressure or is it just, purely to stop corrosion because they're, they're two different things. You're going to get two different solutions. Right. Yeah. I mean, one, exactly. One one is uh, much more sophisticated in terms of structural strength um, than the other. Exactly. Now this is a question I get a lot and I have a a couple of particular clients, uh, particularly in Eastern Canada who've asked me this before. And uh, we have experimented with this. Uh, let's talk about inspecting through composites. What 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 do you have to say about that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's some it's a common topic of conversation um, for us as well. Um, the, the the best method of um, inspection of composite repair is visual, um, mm-hmm. and it has to be sort of risk based, I suppose. But when you have issues with composite repairs, you would often see. Um, a delamination which had been initiated, I suppose, more at the edge of the repair, um, or you would see something like staining of the repair, chips, blisters, cracks, things like that. So a visual inspection can really give you a very good picture. Um, if you're talking about inspection of the steel substrate underneath repair, there there are methods that can be used. So your standard ra- radiography um, or pulsatile current electromagnetic um, can be used. There's also UT methods and um, dynamic response, which is um, we work with the company Sonomatic to, mm-hmm. to develop a particular UT method. So there, there are methods of um, inspecting the steel, the, the steel underneath the substrate, uh, underneath the, the repair itself. Sorry. Right. Yeah, and that's exactly what uh, I had one, uh, one engineering authority with a client uh, out in Ontario was one of the things that they really wanted to see was, you know, you know, we know we have a piping issue We're, we want to use composite to, um, to repair it. Uh, it's an internal issue, internal uh, erosion and corrosion issue. So how do I inspect the integrity of my piping once I cover it up with uh, an engineered composite? Um, and that's the one thing that, uh, you know, and, you know, and, a number of years ago, there were very few options. Today, 
with electromagnetics and um, more advances in ultrasonics and in, uh, in, in a pulsed eddy current. I think there's a whole lot more options to uh, allow clients to, to, to give themselves the ability to do, to do integrity checks underneath the composites than there's ever been. And so I, I, I would say much like the repair, the, the inspection methods, uh, there are a bunch of inspection methods available and they're going to be bespoke to the kinds of repair that we're doing. Yeah. And also the client's preference as well. Right. Yeah. Um, let's talk about failures. Like how does a composite fail? What's the failure mode? Yeah, this is, this is something that a lot of people would shy away from from talking about, but it but it is important, I suppose, um, to to cover the topic because composites can fail. They they don't ever fail in a catastrophic manner, so you're never going to have any major catastrophic event. You would simply see um, a small weak out the end of the repair. Um, mm -hmm. The typical failure mode would be either cohesive or adhesive. We've kind of covered the topic already, but um, the biggest issue is failure of the bond line, so bad surface preparation. So if they've not mm -hmm. prepared the surface and there is no mechanical interlocking, you're not allowing the composite um, a chance to, um, to work as it should. Um, you could also get failure through the composite, and I suppose that would be from inadequate curing or contamination, potentially. Um, but you know, whilst you do occasionally see... Um, Failures with composites, our failure rate is extremely low. It's about 0.02%. Um, and, and generally, it tends to be down to um, human human factors So, or, or, I guess, inaccurate information at the starting point. So that's why we have such rigorous QAQC process, which makes sure that the installer is following our process exactly as it should be with multiple hold points and checks to make sure um, that it's installed as per the procedures because deviating from those procedures could mean that you would end up with um, a failure of composite repair. It's, it's so limited, though, when they're done properly, and that's the important factor. I think if people have seen failures with repairs historically, it's probably because they're using a temporary-type bandage, not an engineered composite repair. Well, now that leads to the next question, which is about competency. And, you know, many owners out there, you know, certainly they can, uh, they can call ICR and either you or one of your partners like Innovator can, can uh, oversee and, and manage the entire project and from, from data collection right through to installation and sign off. But can end users install TechnoRap? They can. So... So the operator can install TechnoRap, but they would have to be fully trained um, in ICR's procedures. So they would go through the same training that our technicians go through. Um, mm -hmm. And that would only allow them to install for non-complex geometries um, until at the, at the very least they'd gained enough experience. I guess the benefit of going to um, you know, the innovator team or the ICR team is that they've installed hundreds and hundreds of repairs over the years. So they've seen all different types of scenarios, whereas, um, you know, the, the competency for new installers is obviously lower. So we would we would always recommend initial supervision to make sure that the application was applied in accordance to um, our full procedures. We also do um, a certification check. So 
once all of the QAQC has been completed, regardless of who's installed that, we would always review that certification to make sure that we are happy the, rep the repair has been applied um, as it should have been. And then we will sign off on that and say we're comfortable that that repair has been done properly. I mean, the way I, I say it to clients, I've seen one operator who, who thought that bringing someone in to train them for three days and then they would self-perform was going to be a great cost-effective solution. Um, <laughs> and the challenge with that is the way I, the way I kind of describe it to clients is if we, we can give you a multi-day training class and people will have been trained, but they are not competent. No, because they've never really installed in real life. Competency comes from experience in doing multiple applications. We have people, even in our own organization, who are trained and competent only in certain types of repairs, but we haven't qualified them on more complex geometries yet. And, and they've done dozens, if not hundreds, of standard um, repair uh, designs, but we, uh, we will partner up uh, our, our, uh, our more junior qualified technicians with more senior people and over time get them qualified on more sophisticated design, whether it's geometry or different materials and temperatures, uh, because it is, a, it, it is a craft that is learned over time. Exactly. And uh, like you said, experience is the important factor. The more repairs you right. do, the more scenarios you've seen. And it's it's important to to pair less experienced people up with more experienced people so that they can learn. Yeah. I mean, one great option that we've often offered clients is, you know, we can offer you the training that you're asking for, but on a go forward basis, we need to have a collaborative approach that you know, you, you know, they, they've obviously got some in-house people that they want to get up to speed. There's some ability to respond. That's part of that. There's some obviously cost effectiveness strategies, but you know, a, a more collaborative approach is we train you and then, and we obviously do all the, you know, the engineering and the material supply, and we yeah. will come with you with our more experienced, competent people and get your people the qualifications, even on the more, um, even on the more, what I would say, standard applications, if it's simply a, you know, a 24 inch long, simple repair on a straight run of pipe that isn't complex, we'll still go with them. But what we can do from a, to try to help them reach their goals is we'll send one of our, uh, our senior technicians to work with them and, and, and over time get their people competent. Uh, that way yeah. it's a partnership and it helps them accomplish what they're trying to accomplish without actually compromising on, you know, beginning with the end in mind, which is the end in mind is not about do it cheaply. It's about do it right so that the repair lasts and gets you the result you want. And so there's a hybrid, I think, in, in the relationship that can get clients there. So I think the answer for clients is yes, we can train you, but it's better if we train you and then work with you and over time get your people competent. Because the other yeah. part is that yeah. it's not, you know, you know, from a qualification standpoint, um, installing composites is not a training event. It's a progression. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And competency forms a huge part of the ISO and ASME standard as well. So it, it really is an important factor.
Yeah, we often will take our one and two year technicians who've been doing this for just a couple of years and they go on every job with 10 year veterans who do this yeah. all the time. Yeah, it's the best way to learn. So the, the last question, which is always the first question that clients ask uh, in the frequently asked question side of this is, you know, how much does it cost? Yeah, I kind of mentioned this already. I briefly covered it, but it's it's such a difficult question to answer. And some people probably think that it's just a cop out answer, but it's not. The truth is every single repair is different. So whilst we're giving you a bespoke engineered repair, that also comes with a varying price dependent on your length, the thickness of requ required repair, you know, the design life that you're looking for from that repair, maybe the geometry. So every, every single repair that I ever do, it's all different. So it's very, very hard to say. Um, but there are some huge cost savings for the, the client when using composite repairs. And I guess the biggest of that being that they can be applied live. So it means that operators don't need to um, shut down where it's not necessary. So that's obviously a huge cost saving for clients. Um, and it's also, it can be carried out with, with minimal disruption as well to, to any operation. And again, that drives really big cost savings. So it's, it's about thinking about the bigger picture. You know, how much could you save if you're not having to, for instance, weld? There's no pressurized habitats required. You know, there's a lot of um, savings in terms of the, the personnel on board. So there's a variety of different factors to consider in that. Well, not just the welding and the habitats, but all of the planning and the indirect costs re relative to hot work are significant. Um, Huge. It, for today, you know, in today's market, our clients are facing sort of, I think, a perfect storm of, of uh, decrease in demand because of COVID, isolation mm -hmm. with the current things that are happening in the world, uh, a collapse in the price that's resulted from that. And likely a you know a protracted recovery, uh, which is all causing, from a head office standpoint, head office is saying delay projects and uh, deter or defer, defer out that turnaround. And so, from a value standpoint, a lot of the piping that you were planning on replacing this spring and this summer, uh, now you have to look at other ways to do it. Absolutely, and I guess a composite is is the perfect solution for that because there will be minimal disruption to um, production and it, it means that they can design that to see them through to the next available shutdown turnaround that they have which means there's no additional cost requirement because obviously corrosion doesn't stop so you know unless you put a composite repair on it it's still going to continue so you need to find a way to to stop that and if change out isn't a, a possible solution um, then composite repairs are the sort of ideal option. Yeah, our clients um, don't have any pause button like the world has right now on corrosion, whether that's nope. uh, I mean, uh, has to carry on. Whether, whether it's process-based corrosion or uh, or atmospheric-based corrosion. Uh, it's happening every day while we're all trying to work at home. Um, yeah. uh, rust doesn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> so you know we've i think we've covered everything that we normally hear in terms of the kinds of questions that clients ask let's kind of dive in just a little bit and i like 
to kind of end our podcast with some insight um, with how customers, what customers should be asking us and asking themselves from an insight and a value point of view and how they should be thinking about composite. Um, that's sort of the, the, the change mindset kind of uh, thinking. So yeah. at a highest level, what should customers be asking themselves around the benefits that they can gain from, uh, from TechnoRap and using Composite? Um, there are so many benefits to using Composite repairs. And, I, you know, we, we just covered one of the biggest benefits, that operators can extend production for up to 20 years. Um, and obviously in doing so, significantly minimize cost. Um, so rather than having to go for a full replacement of a system, it can be carried out with with limited disruption. So that, that in itself has huge cost savings for the customer. Um, I guess the other benefit is that, and the thing we've, we've spoken about, the theme of this is that the repairs are bespoke and they're engineered. And ICR, we really take pride in our engineering and we're, we're very honest in what we do. So if it's not the right job, then we will absolutely turn it down if it's not a, sort of a, a suitable application. The benefit is that the majority of applications are suitable. So there's not that many that we do have to turn, turn down. Um, and again, they can be used uh, for, for a significantly long time. Um, other than that, there's there's huge safety benefits, I suppose. So the installation is is relatively straightforward if you know what you're doing, um, and it's and it's very inherently safe. There's no requirement for heavy lifting, which you would have with with change out. Um, no hot work again, reducing the the concern for safety, um, and again, limited POB on a platform. So there's there's both safety safety benefits, cost benefits, um, and an application time-saving benefits as well. It checks all the boxes in, uh, in what Innovator tries to deliver with clients with improving safety, improving productivity, and improving cost effectiveness with innovation. Yeah. Exactly. Um, any final thoughts that you think our listeners should uh, know about ICR, TechnoRap, or Composites? I think um, I think it's just important to remember that these repairs go through a stringent thought process. It's not it's not a simple stick on a bandage and hope for the best. This is a quality engineered repair, um, and I would I would really encourage anybody to think about any scenarios that they may not be sure if it's suitable for composite repair, and let us have a look, and we'd be happy to work in in a consultative manner, because it, it requires input from both the operator um, and, and from us to get to a solution that hopefully can save time, cost, and improve safety. Perfect. You know, in, uh, in, in Canada, we have uh, another layer of pressure authority. We have local pressure authorities that add another layer of complexity to, um, to composites. They haven't all fully created guidelines for um, uh, for how to lever for owners operators to leverage composites but there yeah. is a working group um, that 
a whole array of industry stakeholders are currently in a composite working group in Western Canada with the goal between owners and the pressure authorities to come up with a structure for reviewing and authorizing composites um, in a more formal manner. Uh, our technical director and general manager, uh, Chris Crooms, is on that working group. And so I encourage uh, listeners who are who are looking at composites in Canada to reach out to us and see how we can help you uh, participate in that, uh, look at uh, the kinds of pilot programs that we're doing with some of the uh, owner operators um, around the country uh, so that we can, um, you know, our goal is to get uh, Canadian pressure and uh, industry um, at the same level of leveraging this technology in, from a custom engineered and controlled manner that many other jurisdictions in the world are uh, without feeling like they're in non-compliance. Um, uh, and that's, uh, that's our goal. So we're, we're working heavily on that. So uh, over this next uh, number of months and year, we hope to create uh, a much more standardized flow um, and um, we're going to be working with with ICR and and Technorap to uh, bring those solutions to clients. Yeah. Shana, I uh, Shona, I got to make sure I <laughs> pronounce that correctly. Um, that's that's my Canadian my Canadian version of mispronouncing that. Um, <laughs> I I really appreciate uh, you coming on board. I, this was a great conversation. I think it gave listeners. Uh, our, our clients, our prospects, and our listeners, a lot of valuable things to think about. Um, you know, what I love about doing these podcasts is they, they, live on the, they live on the web and on the cloud, and now we can send a lot of our clients to come and listen to this conversation time and time again. Um, so I really appreciate you coming on board, and um, please stay safe and uh, ride out this uh this crazy isolation time that we uh the whole world is having over there in aberdeen it's uh it's my family's second home so uh hopefully i'll uh if i don't see you in canada i will see you in aberdeen sometime in the next few months i, I really appreciate Absolutely. you coming on the show thank you very much for having me on appreciate it you stay safe and you thank you And there you have it. We truly do hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Industrial Innovators Podcast. If you'd like to check out either of our guests or their companies, you can find Shona and ICR at icr-world.com. And you can always find Don at innovator.ca. Please don't forget to leave a rating and, of course, subscribe so you never miss an episode. So we will see you next time on the Industrial Innovators Podcast.